My guest this week fill, fills an important space in this podcast. He was a writer for the entire run of the 80s TV comedy series Fridays, the original reason for this podcast. But his credits beyond that are impressive. He was the Emmy-winning head writer of The Ben Stiller Show, which helped launch the careers of Ben Stiller, Bob Odenkirk, Andy Dick, and Janine Garofalo. He's probably best known for writing the Seinfeld episodes, The Old Man, The Conversion, and The Switch. I'm proud to talk to the man best known for putting Latvian orthodoxy on the map, Mr. Bruce Kurtzbaum. <laughs> but my, my gosh, I wish I was in a position to hire myself. That sounded pretty impressive. I, let me let me look in the mirror. Yeah, it's me. I did that stuff. All right, I'll take your word for it. You know more than I do. Okay, so you were born, you're a uh, baby boomer, and you were you're from Massachusetts. I'm a Bostonian, that's exactly right. right. I uh, grew up in Massachusetts. That's where I watched hours and hours of television, Massachusetts television, deciding I'd like to give that a crack when I was a kid that was... That was in southern Massachusetts in a town called Sharon. But there's no live audience. No one's going to applaud that anyway. So I, I guess that's not important. Okay, and who were some of the comedy influences? Uh, the, um, the number one comedy influence for me absolutely was Monty Python. Years and years of watching the Ed Sullivan show and watching stand-up comedians. But Monty Python was such a profound influence that when I started writing, uh, I was basically endlessly writing in their voices. And I heard John Cleese's voice in virtually every sketch I wrote. And I had the strangest experience about 15 years ago. I was in a bookstore in Los Angeles and John Cleese was there and everybody in the bookstore was clearly responding and nudging each other and noticing, reacting rather to the fact that that was John Cleese. And I just wanted so desperately to go up and say how much I had been influenced and how much I enjoyed his work and what a genius. And I finally worked up the courage and I just said, Mr. Cleese, I don't want to bother you, but I just love your stuff. And he said, thank you. Thank you so very much. I wandered away. But what I really wanted to say was I'm a comedy writer and virtually everything that I did when I started was in your voice. It, It was and I was thinking, do I bother the guy with this? Do I dare? Do, what does he care? Leave it alone. Forget it. And I swear it took all the courage in the world. I approached him again. I said, I just wanted to tell you. And he turned and looked at me. I said, I'm a comedy writer myself. And I said, and when I began uh, writing, virtually everything I wrote was imitating you. And rather than saying thank you and blowing me off or going back to his reading, he said, isn't that interesting? He said, when I began writing, I copied a British writer. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, John Cleese is actually taking the time to offer a personal anecdote. And he tells me, I copied a guy named Spike Milligan from The Goon Show. And he said, and it was amazing because years later I got to meet the guy and I knew that everything I had done was, we all do that. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I still have most of the early stuff I wrote. 
it's out in the trunk of my car. If you're interested, I'll let you have it very inexpensively. And I remember he put his head back and went, ah, not a big laugh, but I just suddenly realized, oh my God, I made John Cleese laugh. And then I immediately panicked and said, well, goodbye. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for talking to me. So I did have a chance to tell one of my number one influences, that was John Cleese, that, uh, I indeed had started by virtually slavishly copying, but now I know he did the exact same thing, so I don't feel as guilty. Okay. Carl, Carl Reiner also impressed me. When I was a kid, I knew he did something that was hard to imagine, which was he wrote because I knew that I would see his name on an episode of the Dick Van Dyke show or whatever. But in addition to that, I, I knew from the old Sid Caesar show that he also performed and I knew that he directed as well. So to me, that was the triple crown. If I, if I really absolutely revered a guy who was able to do all three of those to write, to direct them. And that was my goal. When I was a kid, I was thinking I'd love to be able to do what Carl Reiner did. So he, he was another profound influence and always seemed so friendly when he was on The Tonight Show. I, I really uh, would say I used him as a role model as well. Okay, and what did your parents think of your aspirations? I'm sorry, what did my parents think? Yes. They were very worried because they did not see any way into the business. We didn't know anyone. I didn't know anyone. I had gone to film school at Boston University, which, you know, I learned a few things, but it's funny, the whole time I was at film school, I, I didn't pay as much attention as I probably should have when they were teaching because I kept thinking, you know what, when you break into the business someday, you'll learn what you have to learn. I don't have to really pay attention here. I, I never really learned how to thread the film into a movie camera or how to lay out a script or I, I don't know why I wasn't, I wasn't taking notes the way I should have when I was in school. I always assumed someday when I'm in the business, but there was no real bridge between that fantasy of being in the business someday and actually seeing any road to get me in the business. I'm living in Massachusetts. How do I do that? And my parents raised that question over and over again, which is uh, uh, really, to be honest with you, when I got out of college, my goal would have been to work in local Boston television, to be a floor manager, to be a cameraman. I, I, would have been perfectly content if, if I had gotten a job working at a company that made television commercials in Boston. And my mother was, was a good pusher as far as, look, you're not going to lay around here, which of course I did anyway for two years after college, but she was very anxious to go to the Yellow Pages and look up television production companies, look up and call these people, see and I did manage to get a couple of internships at WGBH in Boston, which is the PB, PBS station. I got hired on a children's show called Zoom, mm -hmm. uh, answering Zoom mail that you've never lived until you spend day after day trying to interpret the handwriting that kids would send letters and you're trying to figure out what a 
nine-year-old's handwriting. They want you to send them uh, an autographed picture of who, what. So t to me, that was kind of being in the business, but my parents kept saying, but you're not being paid. All of this is, how are you going to make a living? So I would say they were extremely, extremely worried. When I told them that I was going to eventually drift for a couple of weeks and stay with a friend in New York and see if I could get on Saturday Night Live, which going back to your earlier question, I have to say Saturday Night Live was also a, a monstrous, monstrous influence that, that nothing could be greater to me than being able to... I, I saw myself more as somebody who was interested in performing more than writing in those days because it seemed like a good way you could meet girls. More, more writers that I have spoken to have told me what motivated them to get into the business was the idea that they could meet a girl and have something interesting to talk about in a bar. And I have to say, I am of that school too. I kept thinking maybe I can like meet a woman or something if I'm in the television business. That was my motivation. But my parents were very, very concerned when I told them I was going to go to New York for a couple of weeks. And then when I told them I wanted to go out to California for a month, they were absolutely beside, them, beside themselves saying, but you don't know anyone. Who, where are you going to stay? How are you go All of these questions that I didn't have the answer to. But I must say that when I got to California, which was the, the, the plan was to just spend a couple of weeks. They were right. I didn't know anyone. I had no idea how to get involved, how to get my material to people. I had been in a comedy group in Boston and I made no money in two years. $35 was my take-home pay. And I don't mean that roughly 35. That is exactly what I made in two years <clears throat> of being involved in a comedy group. Um, I had some sketches that I had, while a member of this group, both performing and, and uh, writing, I built up a slight portfolio. So when I came out to California, I had something to show anybody who would be willing to look at me, and I didn't have a, a clue, and I can tell you about that later, but um, when I was out there, before I went out, my parents were very, very concerned about how is this going to happen, but once I got to California, my mother, God bless her, she said, you're out there now, we'll send you another $10. I was living in the Hollywood YMCA. And she said, I'll, say, I'll send you another, how much, I think the rent was $48 a month, if you can believe that, in 1978 at the YMCA. And she didn't want me to come home. Once I got out there, she, the, the inner Jewish mother bulldog came out and she said, give it another week. Give it another week after that. And, and when I told her, listen, I'll, I'll come back some other day, maybe in a year from now, she was absolutely adamant that you're out there now, get something accomplished. So um, I, I would say that they were very, very concerned. But once I started dipping my toe in the water, they were behind me to push me right in the water. So uh, I, I really have to admire the fact, even now my folks both in their mid-90s still alive and they both say, do you realize we let you go out at age 23? We They take a lot of the credit and I guess deserve, deservedly so. Uh, I just have to ask this. Was it fun to stay at the YMCA? <laughs> I was hanging out with all of the boys. I can tell you that was... The YMCA was an experience. I, I really and truly 
when I got out to California, my plan was, I didn't know anyone. How am I going to possibly get a job? And, I, and my, my plan wasn't to get a job. My plan was just, I wanted to see what is required someday when I eventually permanently moved to California. And I had gone to Boston University and I went to the placement office hoping that they could give me the names of some people and I said I, I graduated here two years ago and I'm going out to California can you give me some names or some advice and what they told me was if you're really serious about breaking into television get personalized stationery and always wear a suit to interviews and I literally I was keeping a journal at that time I went home and I wrote those two things like I, I had a leg up that most people didn't know about the personalized stationery and the suit. Neither one of those things is remotely correct, except for when I came out to California and I had a suit. I had never seen anyone else wear a suit, and I couldn't afford the personalized stationery, but I did make a thousand personal business cards, of which I still have 998. I'm, I'm happy to send a card to any of your listeners. It, it has my parents' home phone number, because I didn't have any other number, and my parents' home address in Massachusetts. But I, but I, I at least felt I knew something most people didn't know, which was the stationery and the suit. So I'm out at the Hollywood YMCA, and I... I'm wearing a suit every day in April. This is not a pleasant thing. I bought a bicycle. Back east, people drive bicycles. In, in Los Angeles, there's so much traffic, you don't take a bicycle unless you want to die. But I didn't know that at the time, so I bought a bicycle. I had a briefcase that I hung on the handlebars, and I literally at the YMCA, I, I got a little dose of the dreams that so many people in California have because I would stand in line at the payphone on my floor. There was a payphone on the third floor and a payphone on the fourth floor and you would wait patiently and the first person was on the phone saying he was a choreographer and he was looking for then the second person made a call saying I'm an actor. The third person would come out and say I want to get into catering, I, who knows what, but I remember so clearly standing there thinking every person in this YMCA is doing the exact same thing I'm doing. They're all trying to break into show business. Holy cow. They've all got the exact same aspirations, the exact same dreams. So it was sort of fun on a certain level because you got to sort of see people. As a matter of fact, if in retrospect, I found out some of the, for all I know, Brad Pitt was staying there at that time. I'd be curious to know if some of the people who were at the Y at that time had, had gone on to fame and fortune. I, I wouldn't be surprised. The, the place is sort of a, a famous magnet for a lot of people who were looking to get established in Hollywood to stay there for a while. So it, it was kind of fun uh, in, until the only thing that wasn't fun about staying in the Hollywood Y was that anybody who would be willing to see me, and you have to understand, Ian, I didn't have a clue. I didn't have any idea whatsoever how to get anyone to read my material. And I went to the yellow pages that was hanging there, and I would look up, like, CBS television, 
that would be like, you know, 800-4000, some main switchboard number. And whoever picked up the phone, I'd ask, are you, excuse me, I'm, I'm, I'm an aspiring comedy writer. Are you looking to hire anyone this week? And people would be, this is the switchboard. What? what? And a couple of people had mercy on me and said, you need to get representation. You need to get an agent. And there are, believe it or not, agents in the yellow pages, but I guarantee if they're in the yellow pages, they're not connected to the business the way you and I know it. These are people who are working for Reno stand-up comedians who are looking for, which at that time I would have been absolutely thrilled to do. Believe me, I would have done anything. But I called every agent from Abrahamson to Zukov in the yellow pages Anytime someone would say, yeah, I'll take a look at your stuff, I'd hop on the bicycle, I would drive off. And the only time it wasn't fun to stay at the Hollywood Y was, number one, when people would say, how do I get in touch with you? It was very embarrassing, like I'm a classy guy. You can reach me at the luxurious Hollywood YMCA. What? The Hollywood YMCA. It's like, oh, God. The other time it wasn't, and, and then I remember so well, I would come back to the Y at night after pedaling my bike all over town, and there'd be some guy at the desk reading a comic book or something, and I think my career is in this guy's hands. If somebody calls, he has to take down the message and get a little piece of paper stuck in my phone book, in my phone box, excuse me, that I can call back somebody, but luckily nobody ever called. And there was that one wonderful day that I had a message in my box and I said, Oh, I'm, I'm in, I'm in room 410. I, I have a message. And I thought one of the agents told me I had been hired and instead it was an eviction notice telling me I had stayed there four weeks and I had to vacate as of today. So this wonderful news was, all the people over the last month that I have been dropping material with who had this phone number, I no longer am going to be at this phone number. So now I'm going to have to call everyone and say, I'm no longer at the Y. I've, I've changed residence. And I said to the guy, what is this? I have to leave. What? He said, oh, yeah, four weeks. That's it. I said, but I've dropped off this phone number. And all my material, it's like, sorry, got to leave. So I looked around and I'm, where am I going to move? And I, and I had to go to a motel that was within walking distance because my mother had packed up two suitcases with every item of clothing I could possibly ever use. And this motel was advertising hourly rates. <laughs> Nobody in their right mind would stay at this motel. This was completely wham, bam, thank you, ma'am. And I come in and there was a gentleman at the desk and I said, how much are your weekly rates? Now, I guarantee no one had ever asked this guy what his day rates are, never mind weekly. And I ended up moving into this place and no telephone once again. And I had to call everyone saying I, I can be now reached at the lovely Sunset 8 Motel 
I remember the first time I got into my room, I turned on the television, and I could promise you no one had ever touched the television for any reason in this motel, and it didn't work. And I lowered the Venetian blinds, and they broke. No one had ever touched the Venetian blinds either, and I went back to the desk, and I remember it was a Korean gentleman at the desk, and I said, can I get a different room? And he very angrily says, we all fill up. I said, all fill up? I'm the only legitimate person in this. What are you talking? And he, with great annoyance, took a key and slammed it down for another room. And I was thinking, this is great. Not only is my career in the hands of this gentleman, because anybody who calls and tries to get in touch with me at the Sunset 8 speaks to him. But in addition to he being the gatekeeper for my career, he doesn't really speak English particularly well. And in addition to that, he hates my guts because I told him I didn't like the room I was in. So that, that was very reassuring to know that if anything was going to happen, it would have to go through Mr. Mr. Kim. But uh, anyway, I was actually at that motel when uh, when I was delighted to discover that somebody, in fact, did like my material. So uh, you never know. That's that's where I was living when when I got my first important nibble. And I'm not talking about the nibble that I got from some of the people who were living in that place. But that was a different story. So what were we talking about? Oh. That's what you were talking about, moving moving here and getting your first job. Yeah, so yeah. The, so well, her you know, I had originally, before I came out to Hollywood, I had gone to New York for a couple of weeks. And again, in Boston, I had seen an ad in an underground newspaper. This was back when I was in Boston about a comedy group starting and I called these people up and they said they were looking for writers and I and I sat down and I started writing a few things and as I had mentioned earlier after about two years of being in Boston in this comedy group and this comedy group got some publicity we got we were mainly playing in like tough Irish bars that people were suddenly being told a rugby team would be coming in there and they were being told at the door, there's a cover charge tonight, there's a comedy group and these people were like, comedy group, I'll get the hell out of here. So while we were doing hilarious satire, these people were punching each other out and throwing furniture around it. It, it really wasn't very encouraging. This was back in Boston, but we did get a little bit of notoriety. We got a couple of reviews in some of the Boston papers. So I decided that I was going to go down to New York and see if I could crack Saturday Night Live. And I remember that the National Lampoon, which had a traveling show called Lemmings, that Chevy Chase and John Belushi, and I think Gilda was in it too, the original cast from Saturday Night Live, I went to see this show and when it was over, I hung around to see if I could meet some of the people who were in the show, like a stage door Johnny, to see if anybody would be interested in reading any of the sketches I had written in this comedy group. 
and I saw the guy who was the star of that show. I still remember his name, a guy named Roger Bumpus. And I said, Roger, the show was hilarious, and I'm a comedy writer. He said, I have nothing to do with the comedy. I'm just, uh, he said, if you want, go over to the National Lampoon when you get to New York someday. You, you can use my name if you want. I said, oh, I absolutely will. So when I decided after two years of starving to death, I was going to go to New York for a couple of weeks, same sort of a bit like California, I knew no one. All I had was Roger Bumpus's name. I didn't know if that would be a golden name, but I went to National Lampoon and sleeping on a friend's couch in Stuyvesant Town. I was looking at the Yellow Pages in New York, same business. One of the agents who I spoke to told me that there was a writer on Saturday Night Live who was the last name in the Manhattan phone book, a guy named Alan Zweibel, and he has a reputation as being very helpful to help. And I was thinking, I can't just call this guy at his house, Alan Zweibel. I looked it up in the phone book. Sure enough, there was the name there. But after about a week and a half staying in New York with nothing going on and my friend getting ready to throw me into the street, I worked up my courage. I called this guy Zweibel. And he was very, very nice and said, bring the material. It's, it's incredible. You know, if I, have a, if I have a message for any of your listeners, it's stick with it. If you have any talent, somebody is going to notice. And I'm not saying I was talented, but I had some sketches that people responded to. And of course, I was told no over and over and over again. And all you need is the one yes. And this guy got my material to, I, I told my friend, he said, I'll take a look at your material. Come over to 30 Rock, which is where the address of where Saturday Night Live was being done. He said, leave it with a guy at the elevator, Ernie, Elevator 8, and I'll pick it up. I'll read your stuff. So again, I, I encourage people not to be discouraged. It takes some time sometimes, but... But if you have it, someone is going to look to want to make money off of you. An agent, a producer, if you're valuable to them in terms of being a money earner, they're going to they're gonna reach out to you, believe me. And I told my friend I was staying with at Stuyvesant Town, listen, I'm sorry you've got a roommate permanently because I got my stuff now to Saturday Night Live. I can't leave here in case... They call me, I'm going to have to be here the next two years. I don't care. I'm not leaving. And the next day, I got a call from Herb Sargent, who was the head writer at that time of Saturday Night Live, picked up the phone, and he said, Bruce Kirschbaum, please, this is Herb Sargent. And you have to understand, at that time in Boston, I was living in a house with eight hippies, myself being one of them, and the whole discussion day after day was who was going to go to the liquor store and get a six pack that day. I mean, we were just really not accomplishing a whole lot with our lives. So to now have the head writer of Saturday Night Live calling and he said, I think I read your stuff. And I'm like, yes. And he said, and it's terrific. I really like it. I think it's a professional quality. I'm like, yes. 
So the difference between him saying, would you like to work for this show, and him saying, we can't use you, was the difference between me living back in this house and now suddenly being a television writer. Unfortunately, the next thing he said was that word that I have heard too many times in my career, which is, unfortunately, and I'm like, oh, he said, we're not looking to hire anyone at this particular time. I was like, oh, great. He said, we've really got the same staff we've had for the last couple of years. And he was the one who put the bee in my bonnet to go to California. I had never been out of Massachusetts. I really, I was not an aggressive person as far as my career or as far as accomplishing anything. I, I wanted desperately to break in, but I really didn't know how to go about doing it and was very happy to just dream about it rather than try to do anything. But he was the one who said, there's so little work here on the East Coast. This David Letterman, this, this Saturday Night Live, why don't you go out to California? I think your stuff is good. And I said, can I use your name? Or do you know anyone in California? He said, you can use my name. So anyway, I said, thank you so much. That, that, that was the big thing I had when I came me up because I was thinking of the head writer of Saturday Night Live. Maybe your stuff's good because of course you don't know until you get validated by someone else. You don't know, am I dreaming? That I, that I have talent? Do I actually have talent? The only thing that I felt secure about was when I watched television, I didn't think most of it was particularly good. And, and I kept thinking, if that's the level, I think I can do that. But of course, you thinking you can and you fantasizing is very different than it happening. But I literally got motivated to go to California after my experience in New York with the head writer of Saturday Night saying go out to California and that ultimately is, is what I did and was never under any circumstance in my wildest fantasy imagining I would be able to land work. It was just I want to sniff it out a little. I want to but, but the fact is you kind of do have to be in one of the two places but again that, that's if you wanted to break into a network level. I was going to say again, I would have been perfectly content if I had gotten a job making television commercials back in Massachusetts. I would have considered that show business or working at a local radio station. I would have been thrilled and probably never moved. Only because I wasn't able to get any work in Boston did I start dreaming bigger about either Saturday Night Live or ultimately network TV out here in California. Okay, and who saw your work and asked you to join the writing staff of Donnie and Marie? Right, well, that is exactly what happened. And it was, believe me, the furthest thing from my reality in 1978 was the Donnie and Marie show. I had a ponytail and a long beard and, you know, very much a countercultural person. I didn't want to give a biblical reference. I, I saw myself being sort of the next Jim Morrison or Hunter Thompson. I have nothing to do with any of those people except they were my heroes. And I, I saw myself as, as equally 
really a revolutionary. I was gonna I was gonna change the business for the people. And the Donnie and Marie show was this wholesome, squeaky clean, all American show I had never seen two seconds of. And I got to again through the wonders of very kind people on the telephone. I think some people took mercy on me because I was so completely ignorant about the way that this, you know, like I said earlier, I would call anyone and say, hi, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to become a television writer. And nine out of 10 people would go, do you have any credits? Goodbye. And I started realizing that what I had to do was to get by the person who answers the phone. And 90% of the time, that was just some receptionist, some secretary. So I decided, you know what? I'm going to lie. And I don't feel the slightest bit guilty about this because I realized that at the end of the day, I had to rise and fall on my material. All I wanted was someone in a position of power to read my stuff. So rather than saying what I was babbling about for the first few weeks, which is, hi, I, I, I just arrived from Boston and I'm hoping that I could eventually, most of the times you'd hear click or I'm an aspiring. Instead, I began saying, I'm a television writer from Boston. I figured by the time they checked and discovered that I would never written anything in my life, I would already be long gone, but, and hopefully someone had read my stuff. So I began telling these people, hi, I'm Bruce Kirschbaum, a television writer from Boston. Uh, I'm the winner. I actually thought I'd made up an award. I later found out, I told them I was the winner of the Caldecott Award. I later found out that was for children's literature. I had heard of it somewhere about writing. And now, rather than nine out of 10 people going click, maybe seven out of people hung up the phone, but three of them now realizing they were talking to a television writer who had won the Caldecott Award would say, all right, drop your stuff off here. I'll, I'll see if they want to read it. And that's all I really wanted. And again, I would encourage your listeners, if they have that dream by hook by crook ultimately all you want to do is be judged you want somebody to look at you as a performer or to look at your reel or to read your material or to in one way or another become aware of you and whatever it took i didn't care that i was now BSing these people because i realized that by being honest nobody was interested in the least and every once in a while, somebody would have mercy on me, who was one of these receptionists. One of them said, why don't you call the Writers Guild, which I had never heard of, that's the union. They've got a list of every agent in town. And I'm like, the Writers Guild, who, what? I never even knew there was such a thing. And I took my bicycle, I drove down there and to this day, where I chained that bicycle up, the exact pole is still there. I look at it like it was just yesterday. I was chaining my bicycle to a pole, and 
I got a list of every agent in town, and I did the same thing. I called Abrahamson to Zukov. Must have been a pocket full of dimes I had, and I gave him the um, the winner of the Caldecott Award and so forth. Luckily, nobody knew what the Caldecott Award was, and a few people got to see my stuff. Well, one of the people who I spoke to told me that there is a young writer named Barry Edelman who is on the Hee Haw show who has a reputation as helping people. And it's like Hee Haw, that, that's like a country and Western comedy show. And I used to watch it because Barbie Benton was on it. Mm-hmm. Hugh Hefner's girlfriend, and she used to, did, did you ever see that show? She used to show Bear Midriff. It was amazing. Mm-hmm. But anyway, um, my, my other interest besides comedy is Bear Midriff, but, but hopefully on a pretty girl, not, not, on Barry Edelman or you or any other guy, but getting back to the narrative here, I got the number of this Hee Haw show and I got this Edelman guy and he was really, the, the strange thing about this guy is he is still in the business and is the president of Dick Clark Productions. Every year when they do the Golden Globes, and I think the Emmy, Dick Clark's company produces it. I see this guy Edelman's name, still a very, very powerful guy in the business. At that time, he was just a writer on Hee Haw, but I got him on the phone. He was willing to talk to the winner of the Caldecott Award and a well-known and well-respected writer from Boston who had worked on many shows in the Boston area, too, too numerous to mention. He got on the phone, and although he was not willing to read my stuff, he said, let me get it to my manager, and if he likes it, I'll have him give it to me. Is that fair? And I said, yes. Now, I had been in California by this time six weeks, and I was getting very weary of what was going on, which was lots and lots of not interested. There were a couple of people who were interested, but I was thinking, does this guy know anyone in the business? And I mean, I got to come back some other time. So I had pretty well decided I was going to head back to Boston. And I spoke to my folks a couple of times, all of this on pay phones. Remember, this was pre cell phone. Whenever I spoke to my parents, I'd have to call, reverse the charges, make a collect call to them. I think their phone bill that month must have been $5,000. But anyway, I was really just about to the point that I had decided this was not going to lead to anything. And I would move if I, in fact, ever got around to moving eventually out here. Some other time I would come back and pursue this. But instead, one day I went, the, the, the day after I dropped this stuff off to this Barry Edelman, I came into the motel, the beautiful Motel 6, and the Korean gentleman at the phone tells me that a man called named Jackie Kahane, who wants me to call him back. So I called this guy Kahane, and he tells me he's read a couple of my things. He is the manager of Barry Edelman. He wants to see me. Very, very unfriendly. Very, I read a couple of your pieces. 
come up to my office tomorrow at nine o'clock. I wanted like nine o'clock. Who gets it? Who gets out of bed before eleven? So anyway, I remember like yesterday, he was in a town about fifty minutes away from where I was staying at in Hollywood. I had to take a bus. It was about a three-hour trip because the bus stopped at every other block. And I got into this guy's office, and the first thing I noticed was it was a very tiny little one-man operation. There was nothing impressive about it at all. And it's, it's a strange thing, but I had decided because I was ready to go back to Boston that I was not all that worried about trying to be a little bit funny. With this guy, Kahane, I tried to be a little bit amusing. I knocked on the door and he said, come in. And I opened the door and I said, I'm looking for Jackie Kahane. And I said, who I imagine is you because you're the guy at the desk with the little name card saying Jackie Kahane. And I remember this. He stared at me and said, clown, clown, go out of my office and come in here like a like a regular person so instead of realizing this guy doesn't want anybody to fool around i pretended like i was going in reverse like they were rewinding the tape and i stepped out of the office backwards like i was speaking backwards closed the door knocked on the door and entered again and this guy was red in the face. It, and, and I had never done that with anyone else. I had really taken it. As a matter of fact, I had smoked a little pot before I got on the bus, which I had never done either. I had always been really dead serious about what I was doing out here. But I figured I'm going back to Boston in a couple of days. What the hell's the difference? I would have behaved differently if I knew what was about to happen, that this guy was going to be the conduit to getting me work. And when I got back into the office after trying to kid around a little bit, admittedly not very funny, he was red in the face with anger, saying, are you going to waste my time? Because I don't need clowns. I see 15 people come in here a week, with, and I send 15 of them out of here. And on and on he goes. And I'm like, wow, what an ass. Who is this guy? So he said, did you bring some more material for me to read? I said, yeah, I've got, I've got a couple of, he took my package of sketches and rather than say, I'll see you or I'll call you in a few days, he made me sit in his room in dead silence for the next 30 minutes opposite him. I'm sitting across from this guy and the whole time he's got this scowl on his face that he's reading my material and it i mean he looked like mo from the three stooges just a scowl turning pages turning pages turning pages no laughter no smile nothing and he ends up looking up at me and i still remember this of course i remember it otherwise i wouldn't be able to tell you and he said so you like puns that was his only comment, and I don't think that was a compliment. And I, and it's not true anyway. I don't particularly like puns. And he said, and here's an important thing for your listeners too. He said, you have one piece, one piece that's professional. The rest
rest of this stuff is nonsense. And he kept one single sketch. And why I was saying this was important is because if you have something, a good piece of writing, one spec script that's strong, that's all you need. And furthermore, it's really worth it to get it right. Because most of the time you get one shot with all these people who are going to read your stuff. And hundreds of times that I have read things, I knew people took the lazy way out. There was a cold opening and there wasn't a real good joke at the end. Or, oh, this scene was actually done on the show. And you just sort of realize this person hasn't taken the work to the highest level possible. And it's not gonna help the aspiring writer or the aspiring actor or anyone if the stuff is just good enough. The stuff has to be good. And many other times I've read it and said, this is clever, this is inventive, this is a person I wanna speak to. And I was just fortunate that one piece that I wrote, nothing particularly brilliant, I still remember it about a guy trying to rob a bank over the telephone telling the cashier, I've got a gun here, mail me $10,000. And I don't think it was brilliant, but this particular piece, I'd say for the next four or five years of my career, people kept saying, oh, I like this guy robbing the bank. So it's worth it to get something. And, and you can have, as I discovered, something as flimsy as one five-page sketch that if people respond, it can take you pretty far. But in this case, the guy was being very insulting and telling me, take all this other stuff away. It's not very funny. And I'm like, what is this one sketch? I'm not going to get me the hell out of here. So when I left that guy's office, you know, when I, when I came out to California, I had a packet of three things. One was the sketches. The second thing was I had an audio cassette, which of course d doesn't exist anymore, of some radio comedy I had done. And this guy, Kahane, he was a real no good Nick. He, he didn't like my sketches. He said, do you have anything else? And I said, well, I got this cassette. He did the exact same thing he did with the reading. He put the cassette into a machine on his desk and he stared at me for the next 20 minutes. Well, I didn't even want to listen to this cassette. I had heard it so many times. It was just, oh, I hate that. I hate this joke came late and the sound effect wasn't good. Same thing, staring at me without any signs of being amused while this tape is playing. So when I left his office, I was pretty darn sure that I was a dead man because he said none of my stuff was good and he called me a clown. And I remember it clearly. I called my mother that very night and I said, I want to come home. I've had it. I'll come here some other day. And my mother was stay out there another couple of, no, no, no. You've been saying that for weeks. I want to come home. And that night I got a knock at the door. Same thing with the guy at the desk. He said, this guy, Kahane, call again. He liked one of your sketches. No, he didn't say that. I said, Kahane called? All right, very good, thank you. I had to go back out to the payphone. Called him back, and he said, I got that sketch. 
to the Donnie and Marie show. Now, like I said, that was as far from my reality as you can possibly imagine. And also, I thought he didn't like me. It's like, why did he get my sketch to the Donnie and Marie show within the next hour? He said, I want you to come back to my office tomorrow. The head writer of the show wants to meet you. Now, I hadn't spoken to anyone actually in the business since Herb Sargent at Saturday Night Live three months earlier. Now I had to take that damn bus ride three hours to get back to this guy's office by nine in the morning the next day. I did not feel like doing that. But here I was actually going to meet the head writer of the Donnie and Marie show. And I get back to this guy Kahane's office and he's giving it to me. Listen, you are about to meet a real professional. He doesn't like idiots like you. He doesn't like clowns. Don't try to be funny because you're not very funny. Believe me. And oh, one thing I forgot to mention about this guy Kahane was all over his office were pictures of Elvis Presley and other celebrities, mostly from like the early 60s. And I realized that this guy Kahane was the stand-up comic years earlier who had opened for Elvis Presley. Now he was in the management business. He was himself a old line Catskill comic. And, and I, I hadn't realized that until I had gotten back to the motel that night. So now he's given it to me, telling me we're about to see the head writer of this show, and we go to, and, and, and I remember this, the thing I remember so clearly was this guy Kahane, his hands shook like, like, like a nervous condition. They trembled. And when we got to the house of the head writer of the Donnie and Marie show, he opened the door and I was wearing my suit, by the way, again, I had been wearing this suit every day. I mean, the suit practically couldn't walk in there by itself. I'd worn the suit every day for six weeks. And I remember the head writer was in a t-shirt and shorts. This is the difference between the East Coast and the West Coast. And as soon as he opened the door, I saw he had many, many nervous tics. He was rolling his shoulders, rolling his head, um, making strange grimaces. And I remember thinking, is this what this business does to people? This guy Kahane is shaking. This guy is rolling his head and moving his shoulders. And I am here to tell you that the answer is yes. Ooh. This is what this business does to you because I have picked up over the years every imaginable twitch, tick, and uh, nervous habit. And uh, now I understand. So anyway, this guy Kahane said, the guy you're about to see was the head writer of Laughing and was uh, an Emmy award-winning writer and all of this stuff. And we go to this guy's house and he said, I read that sketch. And I was unhappy because clearly he's not gonna hire me on one four-page sketch. And what I felt like doing, Ian, was dropping down to the floor and just grabbing his ankles and saying, please, please, I just changed my life. I don't want to go back to that house arguing about the beer. But I couldn't do that. I had to sit there. And he said, and I just wanted to tell you, it was very, very amusing. 
and he asked me a few questions that I didn't know the answer, yes or no. He said, uh, uh, he said, are you familiar with the Donnie and Marie show? I had never seen it in my life. I said, of course. I, uh, Donnie and Marie, absolutely, I love it. And the guy, I remember Kahane was sitting op opposite me next to him on the couch. And then he said, do you know the show is being done in Utah this year? Would you be willing to move to Utah? Frankly, I would have been willing to move to Herzegovina if I thought there was any work. So I said, yes, yes, of course. He asked me, can you write with a partner? And I didn't know what the answer was, yes or no. And this guy, Kahane, sort of gave me a slight, the answer is yes, type of expression. I said, yes, I can. And he said, well, very good. I'm seeing a lot of other writers, but I just wanted to meet you in person. And I'm like, oh, God, you mean there's no job? There's no, oh, and he stuck his hand out, you know, good luck to you. If, if this doesn't work out, you're very talented. And I got back into the car with this guy, Kahane, so discouraged because I thought the guy was going to give me a job. Instead, he just gave me, I read the script and I'm seeing a lot of other writers. What good is that? And this guy, Kahane, said, you did very well. He liked you. I said, are you sure? Why didn't nothing happen? Where? He said, I know him. He said, listen, I want to sign you now to a management deal. And, I, and, and this, again, a couple of other people had been interested in signing me, but I had sort of been hesitant because I didn't know do any of these people actually know anyone in the business. So I went back to this guy's office and I knew that if I didn't sign with him, Donnie and Marie would be gone. And he put a contract in front of me, which I later discovered was completely illegal in every way, shape, or form. He signed me for two years exclusive and the Writers Guild, I later found out, you, you can't sign anyone right off the bat for longer than three months. If they don't get work for you in 90 days, you're free. But I gave this guy an ironclad contract. In addition to that, he said, I take 15% of your, and it's like, okay, that's good because right now I'm not making anything. So 15% of nothing is very easy to pay you. And he said, in addition to that, he said, I am going to Reno, Nevada in a few weeks. I want you to write me a routine. I'm about a 20 minute routine. And I'm thinking, a, a routine, a stand-up routine? I, I don't know anything about writing jokes like that, but that was also part of what I agreed with. And literally, I signed this piece of paper just hoping to goodness it would lead to a job. But, you know, every alarm bell in my head was ringing, but I did so instinctively feeling, I gotta give it a shot, otherwise Donnie Marie disappears. And he said, go back. Go back to Boston. There's nothing else you can do. And I was back home. I did get on a flight that very night. Just two days earlier, this guy had been yelling, you're a clown, and none of your stuff is good. Now, all of a sudden, he signed me, and I'm giving away all of my income for the next two years, plus I have to write a 20-minute routine for this guy. And his routines were kids today, the boys, their hair is so long, you don't know who's a boy and who's a girl, you know, that kind of stuff, right up, right up my alley. 
And and literally the day before, it all happened that quickly. And I went back to Boston. And I would say within a couple of days, I got a call from this guy, Kahane, saying, you're hired. You're starting work next week. Come back to California. And I got to tell you, Ian, as close as I ever came to feeling like I was in somebody else's body, I came back to California. They did do the Donnie and Marie show in Utah, but we had about a month of pre-production. And I didn't know what pre-production, I didn't know what anything meant. I didn't know nothing. I had just been living in a house with 12 hippies in Boston, arguing about beer and who spilled the bong and everything else like that. And somebody who's going to get up and change the record for the dark side of the moon. We get, somebody's going to turn it over. Who's going to do that? That was the big discussion for two years. And now all of a sudden I'm back in Hollywood and I felt like I was still there the first time looking for work. I would wake up going, I got to call the, and it's like, wait, that was last week. Now I'm working. How the hell did this happen so quick? It wasn't that it was that quick. I was out here six weeks, which was pretty quick. But what I mean is just a week earlier, I was in a whole different situation. Now I was going to the office and in the office would be some of the guests that we were going to have to write for. And this would be people like Raquel Welch or Bob Hope or Anne Margaret. And I would have to walk into a room like this was a normal part of my life. And all the other writers were all pros. They had been in the business 20 years. And I felt like, where am I? You know, you'd come in and they'd say, Bruce, this is Bob Hope. Yes, hi, Mr. Hope. Nice to meet you. Like I always meet these people. And I would run back into my office and call my friends in Boston and my parents saying, Raquel Welch is in the other room. I was like, what? She's saying, no, yes, I just shook her hand. Are you kidding? I can't talk to her. And then I'd have to hang up the phone and then come in. Anyway, Raquel, uh, what we're thinking here is we've got a sketch that I think you'll like. So it was it was quite a day and night trans- transformation for me, I can tell you. And that first opening came as a result of a guy who I had met who was the most dismissive and the most nasty of all the people I had met who I later sort of found out that that was his modus operandi. He sort of got you off balance and sort of kept the clients nervous about at any time I can fire you. And and, and I ironically later discovered that the only person in the whole business that he knew was this one head writer of the Donnie and Marie show, manager my entire career. It was like the Woody Allen movie, Broadway, Danny Rose, that all the clients leave. Over the years, I must have met a hundred people who had started with Jackie Kahane, and they all wised up after a year and realized, well, he's great for your first job, but he doesn't know anyone in sitcom, and he doesn't know anybody really anywhere. That's why he's in this little one-room office. He can't really help you beyond giving a kid his first break. And as I said, I would over and over run into people who'd say, you're still with him? What? I fired him.
game in 1927. Why are you with him? <laughs> and the answer is, it wasn't in me to get rid of this guy, even though I knew he was completely useless. And luckily, I was able to get work virtually, I would say, 80% of my career, I was able to get work in spite of him, not because of him. And I just was never wired. I was never wired for success the way many, many of my successful contemporaries are. When I was trying to break into the business, I didn't want anything to get in my way. I was very eager and I was very hungry. And I really, I came out to California and I had gone to New York and I wouldn't take no for an answer. But once I broke into the business and I started realizing what a lot of it is like, that very often mediocrity would be rewarded, very often people who were not particularly talented would be pulling way ahead of the pack. You would be judged by people frequently that you don't respect. And all of that sort of spoiled the fun in which I was very grateful for my career. I think I had a good long one of about 35 years, but I never had the fire in my belly of what can I do today to get a little further than I am now, tomorrow. How can I parlay this? And one of the examples of that was keeping this Jackie Kane as my manager. And the thing that was sort of funny was, even though he wasn't getting me work, like even on Seinfeld, which he didn't have anything to do with, we still played the role of he being the boss and me being the client. He would call me up and say, Bruce, Jackie, and he didn't get me the, the, the show, but I said, yes, Jackie. He said, you know, I watched that Seinfeld this week. It's it's slipping. It's slipping very badly. I want to get you off of that. I get a few things in the in the in the hamper right now, in the hopper that I think. And I would go, okay, Jackie, really? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah. This is going to be damaging to you if you stay there. I got, I'm working on some stuff right now. I don't want to talk about it right now. And I would respectfully say, okay, Jackie, let me know, you know, when that plan you know, comes to fruition and I'll, and, and truly up until the day he died, he remained my manager. And the damnedest thing was writing this monologue hung over my head. Remember I told you, he said, one of the other things I want you to do, I couldn't write the monologue because I'm not a joke writer. I always respect people who write a Tonight Show joke who can give Jimmy Fallon or whoever a monologue out of the headlines. Did you see what happened in Iraq today? Or boy, it was cold today. That's talent that I simply don't have. And when I got to Utah with the Donnie and Marie show, this guy started in saying, when are you going to give me that monologue? I'm going, and the best I could do was go to the library in Utah and ask if they had any joke books. And I tried to update and do some switches on some old jokes. It was terrible. And I sent him the monologue and he hated it. He knew he busted me right away. He said, these are jokes a thousand years old. I can't. And I said, oh, well, I don't. Can you write it again? Write me another. 
he kept this up like over the next six years. I, I, I never did finish the monologue. If, if you, by the way, have any kind of jokes about suburbia or about women's mink coats or Miami Beach or any of this kind of stuff, um, oh, Jackie's dead now, though, so I, I, I guess it's not going to matter. I'm finally off the hook. <laughs> but almost to the day he died, he was wondering when I was going to finish that monologue 20 years later. I never did. But I did give the guy 15% of my income, which annoyed me when I found out that everybody else was Being 10. was given 10. And, and half of Kahane's clients said, I'm going to pay you five after a few years just to keep them as clients. He agreed to five. But anyway, Jackie Kahane, wherever you are, God bless you. And he did give me the thrill of thrills that I must tell you, one of the great, I look back and say, I can't believe that that actually happened. But because he was Elvis Presley's opening co comic in Vegas for maybe the last three or four years of Elvis's life, he gave me his Elvis tour jacket, which I have and cherish. And one day he told me he was going to have lunch with Colonel Parker. Did I want to meet Elvis's manager, Colonel Parker, and I said, oh, of course, are you kidding? The guy is legendary. So he did introduce me. He got me my first, and, and I'll tell you, my parents, they felt the same way I did about firing him. They kept saying, look, he got you your first job. I mean, you really owe him. And I, I would say, I know I owe him, but uh, I can't write this monologue. What am I going to do with this? So anyway, that, that that's hanging over my head still. I, I'm still working on it, Jackie, if you're listening today. I, I can give you some women drivers and mother-in-law jokes if, you, if it, that's good. Anytime you want. I'm willing to pay what I was making in Boston, which was, I think, 25 cents a joke, a punchline. Because I made the $35 that I told you. So anyway, and then the rest is history. So that was that was quite an ordeal. And uh, I, I mean, for your listeners, not for me to have gone through it, but it was a it was an ordeal for you people. I, I think, you know, now that I'm worried about I've, I've told so many of my early adventures that if I ever write a book about this, no one will buy the book. But luckily, I'm not writing that book. So I'm I'm OK. Okay, so you're on the Donnie and Marie show. Was Bill Dana still there? Uh, no, Dana was not, and is a guy that I later did meet. And I got to tell you, I, I'm I'm very much the way I perceive you are, Ian, which is uh, a maven for old line Hollywood. Yes. And I did luckily I I broke in just at the tail end of the classic era. So I did meet Bill Dana. He was not, a guy named Bruce Valanche had written on it a year before that a lot of people say, were you on with Bruce Valanche? He was on the Hollywood Squares later. Mm -hmm. What Bruce is famous for is uh, he does jokes for the opening monologue for the Oscars and does so many, especially for Billy Crystal. He used to, when Billy used to do the, Oscars. But what I was starting to say was I did get a chance to meet people that thrilled me, like Milton Berle and George Burns. I missed Groucho by a couple of years. Bill Dana, Louis Nye, Carl Reiner. 
very conversation with, with Ben Stiller once. I have never stopped being a fan. I've never made the transition that it's ho-hum to me. That, oh, today I'm meeting Shirley MacLaine. I still feel, why in the world am I meeting these people? You know, oh, the thing with Ben, I want, uh, before, I, before I go off onto the you know tangent, the thing with Ben, I said, I am still so thrilled if I have a meeting on a movie lot and I walk at Paramount through the gate. I feel like this is where Martin and Lewis made their movies and, and, and The Godfather was shot here. And What the hell am I doing here? And Marilyn Monroe over at Fox, she made movies here. And Barbara Streisand, when I first came out here, the set for Funny Girl was still up an elevated railroad. Why am I on the Fox lot? That's all so wonderful and and mystical and magical. I really, I still believe in the magic of this town. Much as I've discovered the reality of it isn't always that magical. I've always maintained my fandom. And Ben Stiller said, I'm exactly the same way. Whenever I meet a celebrity, I'm, why am I meeting this person? And why am I walking on this famous movie lot that Louis B. Mayer made movies with Judy Garland and I would say a tremendous amount of people that I have met who are in the business are fans. They, they were motivated to get into it almost by their super fandom that I've always stayed hum- humble about it. I don't think working in the entertainment business is any more important than a being a school teacher or a bus driver or anything else. And I mean that sincerely. I really, I think it's a little more maybe difficult to get into than some businesses and people are interested in it, but I don't think it's any more important. I I don't have any ego about, I work in the entertainment business. Never did. I really didn't. Maybe it would have helped me to have more of an ego, but I have never gotten over the thrill of, as I said, I have been many, many times on a movie lot and seen an old time guard and said, do you know, where did they shoot King Kong? I asked one guy when I worked at what was the old RKO studios in Culver City, a guy opened up, he knew exactly where scenes from King Kong, Citizen Kane, was shot on that lot and just to go into an empty sound stage or same thing on MGM when I was there, it was really amazing. MGM, the lot, which is now known as the Sony lot, at that time was known as the Lorimar lot. Lorimar was the big company that at that time was doing Dallas and Falcon's Crest and Knott's Landing, all the nighttime soaps. And I actually was on that lot the day a huge crane came and on top of the tallest soundstage there was the MGM Lion and it said MGM Studios. And I watched this crane take that sign down and I felt like part of old Hollywood was vanishing before my eyes and everybody else was going about their business on the lot. And I was like saying to people, can you believe this? The, the 
MGM lot. I mean, we're watching the sign come down, and most people really were not that interested. And then they put up a new sign that said Lorimar, where it had said MGM for the previous 40 years. Absolutely heartbreaking. And why I compare myself to you is I know in the little bit that we've spoken, you're a tremendous fan of old Hollywood and old show business and New York comics and all of that. This guy, Jackie Kane, by the way, knew Lenny Bruce and knew all of the crowd that used to hang around it. I think it was called Hanson's Drugstore, where the comics used to go, Rodney Dangerfield. And he was a member of the Friars Club and would take me in there to meet people. And holy cow, I just, as a fan, never got over the thrill, first of all, of saying, what am I doing here talking to Milton Berle? But second of all, of just being able to actually meet these people and just have a moment's exchange was was really a, a kick I never got, got over. There's only two people that I was completely intimidated by in terms of never once relaxing, not for a second. One was Marie Osmond, and it wasn't anything that she did, but once we started at the Donnie and Marie show, it would be surreal. Donnie Osmond would come into my office in the morning and sit down, and you don't even think of somebody like Donnie Osmond as actually existing in the real world. You think of like you're on a television set somewhere or a billboard, but why are you here right now asking me questions about the opening sketch? And Marie, maybe because she was a girl or who knows what, but whenever she would come in in the morning and say, hi, Bruce, and how I was always hyper aware of her being a celebrity, nothing to do with carrying herself with an ego. And the other person was Dolly Parton. I was the head writer of, I believe, the last variety show that was ever done, which was the Dolly Parton show. It was a big ratings disaster. That was in 88 and 89. They paid her a fortune to bring back what they hoped was going to be the classic variety show of having a hostess and then sketches, then music and, and guests. The, the thing was absolutely the Titanic hitting the iceberg almost from day one. The show was, was struggling to attract viewers. And I was the head writer. So for, for a brief period of time, I was the most powerful man in country in Western music, which is great. A Jewish guy from Boston. I don't know any of these people. I told them my name was Buck Kirschbaum. I think that's how I passed or something. But she would come in every day and she was so earthy and so quick to give you a hug and just bubbly. And I would not be able to deal with it because she is every inch a celebrity and I don't mean it. She's a very small person, very much, much bigger looking on screen. Not, not in every department. She's a small person uh, height wise, but like Marie Osmond, both women, both country women, I guess I'm afraid of country women. This is what keeps me out of Arkansas. I never for a second was able to forget 
I'm with a really, really famous person. Uh, talking about fame for a second, I, I've, I've never told this anecdote, but this happened once. And I was thinking, boy, I know what it's like to watch a transition take place between somebody who is nobody becoming somebody. Because most of the time you deal with celebrities who are already established when you work in Hollywood. You work on the Donnie Marie show or the Dolly show, and those people are stars, and they were stars before you met them or stars before you were in the business. But every once in a while, the transition happens right before your eyes. And one day, I was at Seinfeld in the breakfast room, and Jerry Seinfeld walked in. I think this was the fourth season. And he absolutely was not being egotistical about it. He was really saying something in wonder of just sort of realizing how my life is changing and is about to change forever. And he came in and said, he, he had this sort of look, look on his face of almost wonderment, saying, you know, I just stopped for a minute at the 7-Eleven to get whatever it was, a pack of gum, before I came in here this morning. He said, and I saw a few people nudge each other and another woman just coming in sort of stopped for a second and made eye contact and then smiled. He said, and I looked up and saw myself in the mirror over the cash register and I just realized I'm a really famous person now. And that wasn't an egotistical thing. That was literally somebody remarking at the wonder of how this business can transform you. And I watched people like Ben Stiller going from, who the hell is Ben Stiller? I never heard of him. When I first met Wayne Brady, it was like, who's he? And then watching as Brett Butler, who had a, a sitcom, she was just a writer on the, on the Dolly show. And, and it's really sort of, I don't know how people adjust to suddenly going I've known Michael Richards for years. I knew him on Fridays and worked with him again on Seinfeld. And I asked him, I said, what is it like? You're a Kramer. There's no escaping you. You're six foot some odd tall. Your hair stands up. Wherever you go, people know you. Every eye, you know, that wasn't going on on Fridays. Every eye in the room turns to you. What the hell is it like? not be able to leave your house without, you know, people doing a double take. And he said, I love it. I love it, Bruce. And I realized that you've got to be wired that way to, to go through that kind of a transformation that 90% of us as writers, of course, nobody knows who the hell we are. But most people go through your life, go through their lives without people making a fuss about you. And I really marvel at how people, some handle it much better and others much worse than others. But to watch that transformation from going from a mere mortal to a celebrity is quite fascinating to watch. And I can't imagine what it's like to experience. I don't think we'll have to probably ever worry about it unless you're becoming famous 
through the podcasts. Maybe you are. Nobody knows who, who I am, and let's leave it that way. Okay. So do you remember the first sketch you got on, Donnie and Marie? Yes, I actually do. And why I remember it is it was the first time anything I ever wrote was actually cited in a trade paper. And I was so fascinated. I had heard my whole life that all the old show business people read the Hollywood Reporter or Variety magazine. In those days, they were dailies. They came out Monday through Friday. And it was fascinating for me to read theater openings and all of this kind of stuff. Again, as a fan, I was I was absolutely fascinated and enchanted with this whole world of show business strictly again as a fan and the head writer heard my pitch of why don't we do a take up on 60 minutes i think that was day one and he said that's a great idea that's that's a funny idea let's let's do that he said we'll call it spiffy minutes and that's not my style of comedy at all. I don't like bad puns like that, despite what Jackie Kane thinks. I don't like puns. He said, we'll call it Spiffy Minutes. And the first sketch that I wrote was Spiffy Minutes. One I remember in, in the Spiffy Minutes was a investigation about, at that time we were outsourcing different industries of every sort overseas. And, and one of the stories was on Hollywood is now outsourcing comedy to overseas. And we showed like a Vietnamese factory where these workers are expected to crank out 35 jokes every day per, per comedy writer. And they only get paid two cents a line. Cheap um, foreign made humor is being in. And another one was an investigation of is there life in Canada, it was done like, is there life on Mars? We've sent an exploration and I, I don't remember specifically what the joke was, but it was this takeoff on 60 Minutes. And when the show premiered, the very first show was reviewed and that script got blasted in the trades i couldn't believe it the very first mention that i ever had luckily they didn't say bruce kirschbaum wrote this so-called funny script but they said the donnie marie show is off to a weak start this year with the comedy showing signs of whiskers down to here a tired takeoff on 60 minutes which somebody thinks is funny to call spiffy minutes was done. And then they talked about what the plot was. And then in a sarcastic way wrote, ha, ha, ha. So I most certainly remember the first sketch I did on Donnie Marie because it was actually cited in the trades. I'm, I'm, I've never mentioned this to anyone. I never told this to my mother, but 
I now have a, a book that is a photostatic copy of all the variety television reviews from the 60s and 70s. It, it, it's, I think, mainly for libraries. I found this book in a used bookstore, but it contains that very review. So every once in a while, if I ever need to be brought back down to earth, I can remind myself that the first time anything I ever wrote was mentioned. Another big thrill I had on Donnie and Marie was in those days, it doesn't seem possible, but they used to actually say in the TV guide what not only who, who the mu musical or comedy guests would be on a show like Dolly, but they would actually say in a sketch, Bob Newhart discovers that his wife, um, Ted Knight, discovers something. They, they would actually give you what the sketch was about. Mm -hmm. And one sketch I wrote, um, which is for the Donnie Marie show, was cited in the TV guide saying this week, Ruth Buzzy discovers that her butler has a butler. So I feel like even though I got blasted in variety, I made the TV guide, so they balance out. It's the only time a sketch that I wrote was ever mentioned in the TV guide. And I, I hope your listeners don't think that's egotistical. That's strictly, again, being a fan going, why did anything I write end up in the TV guide? But it absolutely did. And it was the butler's butler had a butler. And then the final joke of that bit was that Lassie had a butler. And and I, I remember so clearly writing for the two big dog stars of the 70s and 80s were Lassie and Benji, and I've written sketches for both of them. So I'll be signing autographs as soon as the podcast is over, if anyone is interested. I actually saw the uh, Spiffy Minute sketch because all the episodes of, of uh, Donnie and Marie are on YouTube. Really? So I can expect my 15 cents residual check at, at some point. I was not aware of that. I did not know. You know, that was a terrible, I'll tell you what, what had gone on with that show, which was very depressing. The show had been a tremendous success when the Donnie and Marie were a little younger. And it had gone on the air, I'd say about four years prior to my being there. And the year that I got on is when the wheels fell off as far as people just, they had had enough. The audience for Donnie and Marie, who were probably 13 and 14 year olds, were now 17 and they were moving on. You, you know, they were not the teen idols that they had been a few years earlier. And that particular year, the Osmonds themselves had gone, I can't imagine how much they spent, but they built a studio so they didn't have to work in the sinful. I, I was actually told that the parents did not want Donnie and Marie in Hollywood, where there could be all sorts of temptations and evil stuff going on morally. They built a studio out in the desert in Utah themselves at a cost of millions of dollars, which they were hoping was going to attract other productions to come out to Utah 
Kelly show was already, maybe it's me. Everything I touch seems to go, well, no, there's, there's been some hits along the way too. But right from the beginning, 75th in the ratings out of like 78 shows. So there was a real feeling of what it must have been like with Hitler and his generals <laughs> in the bunker, like when the Russians were at the Brandenburg Gate. Everybody knew no one in America is interested in this anymore. They've moved on, guys. You're not doing it. So I'm really amazed that those things have surfaced. You, you told me something I was not aware of. And that particular year was so darn distressing because everybody was walking around smiling like, hey, how are you? And how's the but we all knew America is basically voting thumbs down. They're not interested in the show. The show's not attracting any kind of ratings and we're on a rapidly sinking ship. It's a lousy, lousy feeling. I felt I am going to be moving on, hopefully, and working on something else. But you guys are being roundly rejected by the American public. The very, very first show that we did, the first celebrities, I still remember, uh, were Ruth Buzzy, Paul Lind, and Betty White. And Betty White was the first person who came to introduce herself. And I remember thinking at that time, 1978, wow, Betty White. I saw her on television when I was a kid on game shows and everything else. If anyone ever told me that 40 years later, 43 years later, you can still come up and say hi to Betty White. And everybody says she's the nicest person in the world. I wouldn't have believed it, but she was the first famous person that I met once I got to Utah. And Paul Lind got himself in trouble by getting arrested in a gay bar in Salt Lake City. That was just news. This isn't gossip. And the Osmonds dropped him from the show. I felt so bad. He was the second banana on the show. And he got arrested in Salt Lake City at, a, at one of those places. And I never understood why the Osmonds dropped him. It's like up until that point, you hadn't known. But maybe they didn't. They, they were shocked. But uh, anyway, we, we worked with uh, Paul the first five shows. Then he, he went on to bigger and better, I guess. He died a couple of years later. Um, yeah. but, that, was, that, was a, that was the best thing that happened to him career-wise. Yeah. Because his name was suddenly back in the newspaper. I loved, I loved working for him, but he was definitely um, an unhappy person. I got to know him fairly well, and he definitely... Um, was not funny off, you know, most people are not necessarily the people that they are on screen, but he was always felt like he was carrying a lot of darkness. Supposedly he was a big anti-Semite and, uh, Gilbert Godfrey talks about this on his podcast that, uh, somebody from the Hollywood squares said that he would, you know, they would always get drunk because they would take Monday and Tuesday shows, then have this big dinner where they would get drunk on tape Wednesday, Thursday, and Fridays, and he'd be sitting by himself, you know, smashed on. Oh, those Jews, they didn't let me have a career. Wow, no, I never heard that. That I, I knew, again, like I said, there was definitely, but again, 
Can you imagine coming up in show business and being closeted in that era and being a guy struggling with booze and, you know, who knows what kind of demons the guy must have had. It, 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 uh, the thing that's amazing about Paul Lind that always blows me away is how little America had any inkling about what gay people were about that he was doing a sitcom in probably 1976, 77, 78, in which he was playing a father. People thought Paul Lind was funny, and, you know, they knew the character. <laughs> but all, all it was was just sort of a quirky type of character that nobody, well, it's, you know, Liberace being a big, listen, I don't want to start going down no, right, right. The, the road of, outing people. I just outed Liberace, but I guess most yeah. people knew about it. But yeah. in the 50s, people didn't know anything about that in the 50s. And even Paul Lind having a sitcom in the, in the 70s, and he had a wife and two kids, you go, didn't people know? And the answer is no. And apparently the Osmonds didn't know until that incident happened in Salt Lake City. But anyway, I'm going to have to check on some of those on YouTube and see if they were as as scary as I remember. But there was a it was sketch. My first, my first gig, so I uh, I wasn't judging it too harshly at the time. Yeah, there was a sketch with a disco party, and basically everybody came out and uh, they they said who they were, and then they would roller skate uh, a disco roller skating party, and then Marie. Yeah. Of course, when she got down, she would just go flying off the stage, and then you'd hear a crash, and she'd come with bruises on her, and then yep. she went back, and that was the joke, and she kept on going back and forth, and and then you, you had... Know, I'll tell you, there's a strange connection that happens in life, which when you start going back to how you met your spouse, let's say, you realize that if I hadn't known this person, then I wouldn't have been introduced or I wouldn't have gotten this job if, and that same exact type of, there's a, there's a word for that, synergy, I guess. Mm -hmm. Oddly enough, the best break I ever had in my career, which is getting asked to come in, I was not hired on Seinfeld, but I was asked did I want to come in and pitch ideas. This was the fourth season. Larry called, and I knew Larry from Fridays. So although he didn't say, do you want to come on and be a writer, he did say, would you like to come in and pitch some ideas? And if we like one, we can give you a freelance script. But working backwards, it just recently occurred to me that this guy, Jackie Kahane, introduced me to the head writer of the Donnie and Marie show. And he was very much an old school guy. He liked puns and didn't understand rock and roll in any way. He used to do like spoofs of the big bands, like a spoof of Benny Goodman. What? And, and, the joke you just talked about with roller skating and crashing, very much his style. Old school, essentially. But anyway, that gentleman was the head writer of the Donnie and Marie show. And when Donnie and Marie was over, 
He said, I am doing a pilot for a late night show called the Low Moan Spectacular. I had never heard that name. I didn't know what it was, but I met him on Donnie and Marie and he liked my stuff. He said, the only reason I'm doing this show is because the two guys who were producing this Low Moan Spectacular, Bill Lee and John Moffat, have a deal with the network to come up with a Saturday Night Live from Los Angeles. And I'm hoping upon hope that they're going to use me on this late night show. Would you, this was this gentleman, Phil, speaking to me, would you like to work on this Low Moan Spectacular? Then you can maybe meet this Moffat and Lee bunch. And maybe if they like you, they might consider you for this late night show out of Los Angeles, which was later to be called Fridays. And I did. I had nothing else going on. Donnie Marie was over. I was now back in L.A. As I was discovering, Jackie Kahane didn't know too many people <laughs> with the exception of this guy. So I did this Lomo Spectacular, and I, I was just recently thinking how if it wasn't for that guy hiring me on Donnie and Marie, he wouldn't have then brought me into Moffat and Lee's orbit, which were the people who produced Fridays, where I met Larry David, and where Larry David knew me enough to ask if I wanted to come in and pitch. So really and truly, if I hadn't done Donnie and Marie, it never it would have been Fridays. It's it's an odd thing when you realize and again, everybody in every line your the way your grandparents met, it's all just tremendous happenstance of if this hadn't happened, of course you have to take advantage of the opportunities and you know, try to make those moments count. But this guy that you were just talking about crashing with the disco who was very, the, the odd thing is once Friday started, Moffat and Lee called me and said, we liked the work you did on this low moan spectacular. The show didn't get a pickup, this low moan, but we're doing a late night. And I knew all about it because this gentleman named Phil Hahn mm-hmm. had said, maybe you should, and they did not ask him whether he'd like to be on the show. They asked only me. I was actually the first writer they hired on Fridays um, because we had done work together on this Low Moon Spectacular. And this guy, Phil, it was a little embarrassing because I got hired because of him. And he really was very unhappy. He, he had been convinced, but it would have been a very different show because, again, he was from... A, different idea of what was funny. I don't want to put him down. I owe my career to that guy. Just died, as a matter of fact, this year. And I I had a chance to speak to him a couple of times within the last couple of years. And um, I'm very deferential to him. Believe me, I was. And so you hired him on Dolly. Yes, that that was a strange one. I actually didn't do that. They had interviewed him as well as myself and several others. And he was hired, not by me, but by Dolly and by Sandy Gallen, who was Dolly's manager and the producer of the show. They hired him just as a staff writer. And I was a head writer. Mm. And it was 
very awkward for just 10 years, almost exactly, from the time he had hired me. And I said, well, well, the shoe's on the end of foot. <laughs> no, I didn't do that. It was very, it was, it was awkward for me because I was used to him saying, rewrite this or change that. And suddenly being the co-head writer and he being on staff under me, there was a couple of people that it was sort of ironic that were under me. Another one was a guy named John Aylesworth, who was also just a staff writer. And he was the executive producer of the Hee Haw Show. Those keeping track at home will recall that 10 years earlier, when someone told me that there's a writer working at Hee Haw named Barry Edelman, and that's how I got eventually to Kahane was I had called this guy Edelman. Well, this guy was the guy who was the executive producer of Hee Haw. Now he was below me just as a staff writer too. And I felt like, why the hell am I telling you guys how to rewrite this stuff? It was just yesterday that you were telling me what? But of course I didn't do that. I said, well, well, the shoes on the other foot. No, I didn't do that. So, I felt like doing it though. Except, like the Donnie and Marie show, that show was in desperate trouble from word go. I remember the first show they had, like Jane Fonda and Burt Reynolds as the guest stars. And people in Hollywood, they can smell a forest fire very quickly, word gets out. And the show started getting into ratings trouble. Like by week two, we attracted half the ratings we had the week before. And by week three, half again. And by the third week, I remember the best that they were able to book was Bobcat Goldthwait and Dolph Lundgren. And I'm not kidding. That, that was actually who the guest stars were. Dolly had never heard of either of them and was fit to be tied going, you know, who the hell is Dolph, Dolph Lundgren? I'm gonna... And it was like, uh, none of your big shot friends want to do the show because they smell that we're taking on water. So I think we killed Variety once and for all with that show. Donnie Marie put a bullet in the corpse, but I think uh, the Dolly show deep sixed it once and for all all right so you're on so you're working on fridays and steve adams is another person who went with you from donnie and marie to fridays that's right exactly he was um ironically somebody who was also from boston but was in a rival comedy group there were two comedy groups in all of Boston at that time, the one I was involved in, and later one that I discovered that Steve was the head writer for, so that was kind of strange. And we had both worked on Donnie and Marie. He is simply the most talented sketch writer. He's better than me, and I think I'm a pretty good sketch writer. It's funny, as my career has progressed, I've gotten very comfortable admitting weaknesses that I have. And I'm, I'm a very good story guy. I can really come up 
with a lot of twists, like on Seinfeld. But I'm just a okay sitcom writer. I'm not a genius sitcom writer like some people are. But one thing I can do is write a sketch, a damn good sketch. I'm I'm really more of a miniaturist, like like Gary Larson was a genius just doing a one-panel cartoon, and I'm really good at five to ten pages. And Steve's better than me. He's the only guy. And I remember on the Donnie and Marie show, halfway through the year, they let everyone go except for the two of us. Steve and myself were asked back by this Phil Hahn to do the last eight shows. And it was the most miserable experience of my life because this guy was a machine. He would get in at 9.30 and by 10 o'clock was already t- typing away, tap, 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 tap. With me, I'm like schmoozing with the secretaries. I'm going to get some coffee. Then I'm going to get a donut. Then, And when there was a staff at the Donnie and Marie show of like 12 people, you could hide. It was great. You could go. When the, the staff was hard back to just the two of us, I right away said, this is going to be trouble because this guy, Steve, is impossible to keep up with. He wrote two, and it's funny because I've told him this subsequently, and he said, really? What? I said, you? I just used to curse you because I would come in and hear as I would approach my office, I'd hear this typing going on at quarter or nine, quarter or ten in the morning. It's like, what the hell is this guy doing? I, I felt like I wanted to sabotage you. He said, I never knew you when I went through it. Believe me, I went through it. So I really, I, I was thinking I'm going to blow my career. I, I am a very slow writer, and that's very hard to survive in Hollywood being a slow writer because they want things when they need things, and they want it, you know, we'll fix it later. And I'm not that kind of person. I'm very much a perfectionist. I really, I, I, I've been on a single line for one week, many, many, many times. I can't go on to the second line unless the first line is right. And people are like, you can't do that. You guys like, I, and what I would do is I would stay up all night. I'd go without sleep for days. And I just, I, I, I took forever to get anything on paper. And the only way I did it was, as I said, I would give up eating, sleeping, bathing. I would just work 22 hours for 10 days and get it done. And the same thing was going on at the beginning of my career too, very slow. And this guy Adams was writing eight, 10 scripts a week to my one. And I was really thinking my career is gonna be over because this guy Phil liked me the first half of the year, but now this guy Adams is going to kick my ass. Damn it! Damn him! It was it was dreadful. And when the show ended, I was so grateful to never have to see that guy again. I really I really was a battered guy. I felt like I had been exposed as my writing was good, but I just can't you know the quality and the. the the quantity that this guy cranked out. And when I got over to Fridays, as I said, I was the first writer, but I wasn't the head writer and I wasn't in charge of putting the, the staff together. 
But when we began work about a month later, who should be on that staff but my nemesis, Steve Adams. I couldn't believe it. I mean, it was like exactly my worst nightmare. This was the guy who had been so difficult to try, and I wasn't competing. I was just trying to keep up with the guy so I wouldn't look bad. Here he is again, and they recognized his talent over there almost immediately as well. And at the end of the first cycle, they made he and another writer named Joe Shulkin head writers because those guys were great, better than I was. And I, I am stingy. I'm very free with compliments, but I'm stingy with a compliment as a sketch writer. And that guy kicked my butt. He, he consistently impressed me with his originality and output. The guy's, the guy's terrific. And a great guy, too. And do you remember the first sketch you got on on Fridays? Yes. I, I did. Uh, I do. And it became sort of a rallying cry for sketches that make no sense and don't go anywhere. After Donnie and Marie, I was so anxious to get away from that squeaky clean all-American square image that I was channeling my inner Samuel Beckett or Eugene Ionesco or any kind of experimental theater of the absurd that I just felt now at last I can have free reign and not have to worry about commerciality. And that is a very juvenile point of view because you're still working on a network show that hopefully is gonna entertain a wide audience. I was only 25 years of age and my heroes, like I said, were people that were sort of rebels. I saw myself like Marlon Brando in The Wild One or Jim Morrison or somebody. I, I was gonna make the world bend to my will. And on Fridays, I felt I could really be as far out as I want to be. And I sat in my chair and I just wrote a character saying the word, I want it, I want it, I want it. And then I had a character coming in with a clipboard saying, you want it, I want it. He needs it, he said to somebody else. And it was this wonderful rhythmic thing of what somebody wants, what somebody needs, and then finally the people in charge agree he wants it, he needs it, he'll have it. And what happens next is a character comes in, puts a plastic bowl on his own head, drops his pants, and says the word Akibo, which is just a nonsense syllable. Akibo, 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 Akibo. And there was no rhyme or reason to it. Then the character who had said he wants it says that will do. Everybody thanks everybody and he walks out and says that the guy who put the bowl on his head and said Akibo, Akibo is easily the best Akibo man in the business. And that struck me as so funny and so Samuel Beckett and so offbeat. They did that sketch. It bombed. Once again, playing to no, no laughter at all. And 
And for the next three years on that show, anytime anyone submitted a sketch that was a little bit out to left field or didn't work or was self-indulgent, everybody in the room would go, Akimo! That became the rallying cry for this isn't going to work. So yes, I remember that because I was so sure that the audience was going to clap and laugh at the absurdity. The second thing that I did, which was done in the pilot, was everything was disco in those days. It was it, disco was so popular. This is a very funny sketch. A takeoff on religious broadcasting going disco and having a show called Disco Religion. Tonight we're going to get down, we're going to shake it to the man upstairs. And each of the cast members came out. Larry David um, sang, Oi, 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 stay in a Jew, stay in a Jew. Um, I, I wish I could remember the lines. Um, um, get I, out of here with that pork. Oi, 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 something like that. Yeah, get away from me with the, I don't come near me with no damn ham. Michael Richards did Do You Think I'm Holy? Everything was a spoof. And you should be chanting. A, a spoof on the village people. And those were the two. And that one was exactly the opposite criticism. And Elaine Pope said it to me. That, that never aired. That was done on the pilot and was only used when a when a script when a sketch had fallen out about a year later, Elaine Pope, who was the only lady writer on Fridays, said that I I, I remember um, it was a takeoff on the Village People and Donna Summer and each one, and she said that's really Carol Burnetti. That's so commercial. That's just it, there's nothing edgy about that and just like a light went off in my head i realized she was right that it's like wow you're right that that could have been done the osmonds won't do it but that really is a little bit middle of the road holy cow so i got off to sort of a shaky start on that show one thing was too far out and the other thing was sort of too commercial it you know it took us a while to find the comfortable middle ground but when you asked, do I remember my two or my first sketch? It was those two, and they both had me sort of, I think, leaning too far left and too far right before we sort of found a more success, at least myself, a more successful formula. I mean, I, I like that sketch in the convent. Yeah, do you remember that? Yeah. In the convent, we, we will give up sex for God. In the convent, lots of people think we're odd. Yeah, that's right. That's what it was. I, I was really proud of it, too. But Elaine quietly said, isn't that sort of like, you know, middle of the roadie? And I got worried that, holy cow, did I do something that was showing my Donnie and Marie pedigree? But yeah, uh, th those were the two. Akibo will go down, and it, it's funny, I felt everybody had their role on that show, and mine was to be the sort of offbeat guy, I don't know why I assigned myself that role, but you know, after a while, I came to realize my job is to entertain, not to satisfy my own ego, and I really became more comfortable writing sketches that were hopefully entertaining 
enlightening and uplifting, but doesn't have to be revolutionary, doesn't have to. I really, I think after the Donnie and Marie show was sort of the angry young man, which is, I spent a year doing this square stuff that wasn't me, and now I'm gonna do this far out stuff, but I, I really don't think with the advantage of hindsight, that's necessarily a mature viewpoint. You aren't in Hollywood to be an independent genius. You're in Hollywood. The, the metaphor that I always think about is when you work in Hollywood, it's sort of like you're using a public pool or a public tennis court that has some rules posted, which is people using this facility have to have on sneakers or have to wear a bathing cap or no horseplay. No, and you have to read those rules and then you say, okay, I want to use the facility, but I've read the rules. But when I first got to California, I didn't feel that way. I felt like I'm going to make the world bend to my will. I'm going to write crazy stuff against the world my way. And I came to sort of realize Hollywood is like that swimming pool or like that tennis court that there are certain rules here, which is you're being paid and you're going to have to listen many times to what your boss wants. And you're being paid because a lot of people have to see this show and hopefully will be entertained. And you're being paid to be a team player. And I didn't feel that way at all at the beginning of my career. I was, I'm going to turn the world upside down. And I sort of became a lot happier when I began realizing, you know, you're here by choice. You have elected to work in Hollywood. And that means sometimes you're going to have to compromise. And sometimes you're going to have to be a big boy and recognize that your bosses are asking you to do this. And you have to sort of, you, you've sort of tacitly agreed by signing a contract and taking their money. So when I was on Fridays, at least at the start, I was very convinced that there was going to be an audience for bizarre stuff and an audience for uh, the sketches I was writing. I remember one was oh, in an arcade like you would see at the pier in Jersey or something like that. And there were all of these games and there was a woman on her hands and knees going around in a circle and she's a real woman. And next to her was a guy with a megaphone saying, help the lady find an earring, 25 cents. Mrs. Bloom cannot find her earring. And there wasn't much more to it than that. It was people saying, honey, do you want to help the lady find an earring? Why would that be fun? Oh, let's do it. And, and the producers began saying, listen, if you want to mix those kind of things in with more commercial, you know, I hate to use the word commercial, but, you know, we'd like you to write stuff that has a chance of entertaining people. And I was really annoyed. I felt like, are you kidding? I did that square stuff last year on Donnie Marie. Now I'm going to just do weird stuff that my friends watching at home after they smoked a joint will think is weird and funny. And as I said, I, I, I grew up and came to realize that's really sort of a very juvenile view, but 
I would say the first year at Fridays, I was very committed to a lot of pieces that were done that didn't normally get a huge response. And that in retrospect, I look back and say, geez, I was being self-indulgent. And those guys were being very, very nice to me to give a chance. Half my pieces would get done at five minutes of one in the morning, which was five minutes before the show went off the air. And now, as I said, in retrospect, I've sort of come to recognize that a lot of the stuff was not exactly user-friendly and easily accessible. Um, Shake Your Faith was actually on the second episode of Fridays. Is that right? Yes. I didn't realize that because when we did the pilot, the pilot never aired because there, there was elements of the show that had changed by the time we reached air. So what they did was they cut that pilot up and used those pre-tape episodes whenever a piece didn't work. If they, between dress and air, said, you know, God, that piece bombed. Look, we can use disco religion or we can whatever, shake your faith. And that's interesting because I knew that was used as a fill-in later, but I thought it was way down the end of the show. So I remembered that incorrectly. That's interesting. Did you have anything to do with either Diner of the Living Dead or Women Who Spit? No. Women Who Spit was Steve Adams and Diner of the Living Dead was Larry Charles. And that Diner of the Living Dead was a piece that caused such outrage, as you probably know, that we lost like seven affiliates who said, and it's funny, none of us really thought of it as being that shocking or that different that today I think it would play without that kind of response to be honest with you but the uh, the thing did get the wrong kind of publicity for the show in, in general I didn't want the show to be you know shocking and the women who spit was another one but again it was handled very maturely Steve would take like a a silly item like, you know, we are women who spit, but they would sort of do it in an inventive, or Steve would do it sort of in an inventive type of way that they would keep a mature level of conversation up about something as silly as women who spit. And do you find that, you know, people, that was done as a game, as a talk show, wasn't it? Yes. Yeah, exactly. So no, in both of those cases, that was, that was Larry Charles, who I did end up writing quite a bit with and of course later he ended up being on Seinfeld almost from the beginning and Larry and I did the Three Stooges together and and some of the musical pieces so we we ended up working together but he alone did Diner of the Living Dead that was the third show with The Clash which was a show that everybody was very proud of because The Clash was sort of a cutting edge band at that time, you know, right up with the Sex Pistols as being, you know, one of the founders of punk. And that was a, that was a real coup to get those guys. Uh, I remember that was the third show. But you didn't get Don Von Vliet. No, no. You've done your research, huh? Yep. I did not. And, and to this day, I cannot get over that. That story was, a, I was a fan of an obscure musician named Captain Beefheart, and 
and I was in a deli with one of the ladies from Fridays who had a reputation as if you give her enough chicken noodle soup, you could probably take her home. And I had heard from people that every band that came through there ended up taking this lady home. And somehow or another, I ended up eating her. Well, not somehow or another. I spent the whole night saying, do you want to go out and get something to eat? And while I was sitting there, I looked up and there was this rock star that I admired named Captain Beefheart, who is a guy associated with Frank Zapper, of course, and really had a reputation as being far out. And I went up. I said to her, excuse me just for a minute, I just, I've got to talk to that guy. And I went and I made conversation with him. He couldn't believe anybody knew who he was. His wife kept saying, you really know him? You really know him? And I asked him for an autograph and he signed the back of a gum wrapper, a juicy fruit gum wrapper I found on the floor. And he said, do you want a piece of art? He was also a well-known painter as well. I said, what do you mean a piece of art? And he said to the woman, tear off a nice big piece of that paper that you wrap up whitefish with a lux and give me, give me one of those magic markers. I'm going to do this guy a piece of artwork, his artwork, which now goes for tens of thousands of dollars. People collect his stuff. And he had no sooner put the tip of the magic marker to the piece of paper when all of a sudden this woman appeared all in tears and all hysterical saying, and I had completely forgotten about her. I'd been talking to this guy for 10 minutes. She'd never been so humiliated in her life and blah, blah, blah. And she stormed out of the deli. And there I had that choice of, do I stay with Captain Beefheart or do I think about my male hormones? And of course the hormones one out and I ran after her saying, please, I'm sorry. And I dragged her back in there just in time for this guy to say, good night. And we'll catch you next time. He said to me, the paper was still sitting there completely blank. I had a chance to get, I could, I could retire on that painting. And you know what? Later back at my place, I didn't get it that night either. So boy, what a washout that night. So it wasn't worth it. Yeah, I think that might have been the show Bob Balaban hosted. I'm still, I'm still mad at Bob Balaban for blowing two different things for me. But I, I occasionally speak to that lady. You know, the funny thing about Fridays is the show is 38, 39 years gone, and it's like people who fought together in World War One in the trenches who stayed friends forever. We are pretty much in touch with. Just about all of us. I, there's not one person on the show who's still living that one phone call couldn't get me in touch with. And I'd say just about the entire writing staff I've spoken to within the last year. It's really an amazing testament to the the incredible pressures that we were, were all under that sort of forged this bond of friendship that has has stayed you mentioned steve adams who i told you had been on the donnie marie show then on fridays he and larry david have remained the best friends of best friends i speak to steve there's really no one 
that that I think of that I either haven't or can't very easily speak to. And it's really, it, it's a testament to that show, the, the real kinship that was formed there. I talked to uh, Kevin Kelton, and he said, oh, tell him to give me a call. Uh, I love talking to him in the office when I was there. Oh, that's great. That's nice. I will. Kevin actually is, uh, is again, Kevin, you had on the show, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. He ran into... Jack Burns didn't tend to trust people who didn't smoke pot. And Freddie Raker and Kevin Kelton just weren't interested. They had either been through it and given it up or just didn't want to. And that was sort of silly. But truly, I, did, he, did he mention that? that no, he, he did not mention that. Yeah, that, that was absolutely, I think, a, an extra weight that he was, you know, all of us carry, you know, that that show had a very, very strange chemistry, which is the writing staff was exceptionally, exceptionally close, but Moffat and Lee seemed to fear the writing staff uniting against them. So very often I felt that they did things to sort of keep us at each other's throat or keep us off balance. And I've never seen a, a, a situation like it. It didn't work because, as I said, everybody was totally honest. But a perfect example was they once called us in. For instance, Larry Charles and I in front of the entire writing staff were once called in and told, don't tell the other writers, but we just got the okay from ABC that we're going to do a full-length feature, the Friday's movie, and we want you guys to write it along with Tommy Kramer. And don't tell the other guys because we don't want them to be jealous. And then they would let you go out of the room where all the other writers are sitting. Like, what was that all about? And we told them immediately, <laughs> which is they told us not to tell you, but there. And Curtis and Ash were called in and told in front of other writers, listen, we're going to be doing a primetime special. Well, don't tell the other writers, but... And they would immediately do the exact same thing. So they're doing a pro and we would almost laugh. Like, why do they think it's important? And you know, to, to to sort of give each of us secrets. And the answer was, it felt that they sort of almost feared a united writing front. And I and I really think a lot of it had to do with the fact that John and Bill came from a different background. They came from a very sort of mainstream television background. Um, hugely talented guys and guys that I really like personally, but they had to deal with the Dick Clark company for years. And, you know, whatever Dick Clark is, you don't think of him as cutting edge. And I really think that they sort of felt, you know, they looked to hire a good mix of people but then it seemed that they wanted to keep you deliberately off balance. One thing I'll, I'll never forget as long as I live, of course, if I'm going to tell you it, I obviously didn't forget it. Mm. They once called the writing 
together to tell us that two of us were in trouble with the network for not delivering. And you get this real cold, like, gulp, and you walked out of the room going, who has the cooties? Is it you? Is it me? Is it any of us? Did that even happen? Is all of that just to keep, you know, nose to the grindstone and, you know, each of us cranking out? And, of course, that's not helping anyone to be told two of you. And the same thing was done with the... With the writing staff, I mean, with the with the acting staff, that there was talk about making the change in the cast. And I know Larry David always said it was me. I know that they, I know the network wanted to drop me. They thought I was the weakest cast member. And Jack Burns told me that that was the case. But my point is, it was an odd type of setup there that the writing staff, it seemed by design, they try to sort of keep you off balance or unsure about the pecking order or who was hot that week, who was cold, where did you, where did you stand in the hierarchy yeah. that particular week? And I really never experienced anything quite like that subsequently. Prior to it or subsequently, that was sort of designed to keep people slightly off off balance as to where you fit into the structure of, of, of the show. Now, a couple other questions. Um, I actually have a lot of questions because I've you're the only person I've interviewed besides Tom Kramer who was there the whole time. Yeah. Uh, Natty Dredd, Kevin Kelton thinks that you were the writer on that? Yes. That's true, and that's a perfect example of... Um, that was a Rasta man, and he was doing it as a cooking show. You know, cooking with a Rasta man, and everything was copious amounts of oregano, which was supposed to be pot. We used we used ganja. That that was the catchphrase, and the perfect example of the difference between the producer's viewpoint and the writing staff's viewpoint was. That was a character that I worked up with Darrow Igus, the only black member of the cast. Mm -hmm. And it was over. It was a one joke thing. And so frequently on Saturday Night Live, as well as on Fridays, the character would come out of a situation. In other words, wouldn't it be funny if a Rasta man had a cooking show and if all he could think about was finding an excuse for smoking pot or using the pot in the recipe. We did it, it did really well. Moffat and Lee said, we gotta see that guy again. And I said, why? We did the piece. And they said, we, because the, the, the audience responded in a huge way. And I'll tell you, in retrospect, I agree with them. I don't agree with the 25-year-old me who resisted it. And I said, but we did the joke. In other words, if you would do a sketch on a show in which a guy is a crazy pharmacist, the sketch is done. They would say, let's see that guy again. And the writing staff would say, but we don't have an idea for him. And it's like, it doesn't matter what the idea is. The character is funny and you would see that on 
Flash editing I like too. You you liked characters, but they came out of a situation as opposed to find a situation for the characters. And very often, when you see the same characters again and again, they weren't as funny because there was no sketch, there was no idea. And I told these guys I wasn't going to do it again. And they said, then we'll find another writer who will. Who wants to do, and I felt the joke is over. It's a one joke thing. It's a roster man using pot in his recipes. Why do we want it? And they did it again and again mm -hmm. and again. And I got to tell you, I remember Jack Burns was sort of midway between Moffat and Lee. Moffat and Lee were all about characters. Let's bring back reoccurring characters. And the writing staff was against that because we felt we saw them coming out of a particular sketch, but there's no reason to see the rabbis again because it was done. What's the sense of doing the same sketch again? And Jack Burns used to say, look, I understand you writers' resistance to it, but going back to the beginning of the television, characters is what makes it. And we really get to see these guys from time to time reoccurring. And I stand now apart from how I felt as a 25-year-old, which is I'm not going to do it again. I think that, I think that John Moffat and, and Bill Lee were correct in saying this, the, the thing did great. Michael Richards did Battle, Battle Boy. Boy. And I did, you know, which was a kid blowing up soldiers. I did the either the first or the second of that and again felt there's no reason to see it but i don't believe that that's in retrospect the right approach to building a successful show i i feel that the uh the characters really are the backbone of any show like um on ben stiller show skank yep that's you exactly right now that was almost a spoof of that that was sort of a let's just come up with a character that we could sort of make fun of the idea of a reoccurring character and, the, and that it was initially conceived as a character that can sort of spoof the idea of the lovable character that everybody wants to see here on Fox. At the time we were doing the Stiller show, Fox was such a, also ran as a network, they, they were throwing anything against the wall to try to make it stick. So a lot of the shows, a lot of the sketches rather, were sort of an attempt to spoof Fox's network's logic of, yes, it's the lovable character, only on Fox can you see, and we were making fun of the fact that nobody watched Fox, it's hard to believe that there was a time that they were, you know, much considered sort of fifth rate. They, they, their biggest show. Matter of fact, I had the experience of working on midway through my career. I got away from doing comedy. I, I actually did some Twenty One Jump Street scripts. And um, that was the first show that broke through. That was like 110th in the ratings. So a lot of the Stiller show was sort of aimed at making fun of the fact that Fox was trying anything and everything to attract an audience and was unsuccessful in doing so. I'm walking outside for a minute. It sounds like I'm walking through an airfield here somewhere. Yeah. There's 
house, which is my office referred to lovingly as the house of pain, because that's where I did all of my writing. Okay, I'm in the house now, and I'll close the door, and you will not hear any more of that airplane. And um, the first guest on the Ben Stiller show was Bobcat Goldthwait. <laughs> I think it was Bobcat. First episode didn't have one. Bobcat was early. That's true. I never knew. You know, that show, we had, I've worked with two people that taught me lessons. One is Ben Stiller and one is Larry David. And that is, you really and truly can occasionally get away with saying no to the network and Larry told me that you know he knows more than them and he's not going to compromise and Ben Stiller that show had a very rough birthing process the year before I got involved on the Ben Stiller show they had done a pilot for the Ben Stiller show Ben if I'm not mistaken had a this is getting back to Bobcat, believe it or not. Um, had a show on MTV mm-hmm. and got the show on Fox. He did a pilot that they didn't like. Then the next year, the next cycle, they said, we like this Ben Stiller guy, but let's find Judd was involved the first year. The second attempt also was a completely different attempt. It was more like Ben Stiller's playhouse, almost like Pee-wee's playhouse, that it was a big room that guests would come and go, almost like a talk show. You would go out to sketches, but there was a home base. They didn't like that, and that's when the network told Judd and Ben, who had done both of the pilots, listen, we have to bring in somebody who's a television guy who you know knows about the nuts and bolts, essentially telling them we're looking for an adult in the room. And they were not overwhelmed with the idea of anyone coming in. So whoever was about to get that job, I got it, was not exactly welcomed by Ben and Judd because, and I understand it entirely, because they were the ones who came to the network with the show and they wanted Ben. And now they were told, listen, you guys have to find a babysitter or a grown up or somebody who's going to do the nuts and bolts stuff of, you know, getting the scripts in order and so forth. So whoever they hired in that job was not going to be particularly welcomed. And I remember when I interviewed for it, I said, I totally empathize. You know, I'm, I'm sort of a, I was a rebel type of guy. I didn't want to say when I was your age, but they were probably 10 years younger than me. And I said, listen, I completely understand, you know, you, you have your vision and you want to go your way. And, and I, I get that. And I'm not going to follow that up. I, I had to sort of explain why I, why I'd be an effective keeper that, that I, I won't follow up your image and I'll, you know, I'll let you do what you want to do. It was sort of weird. I was auditioning for a job and also at the same time assuring them that they were 
going to be able to do what they wanted to do. And the reason I'm bringing all this up is we started doing a show and approaching it along the lines of how the show ended up, which, which was very hit or miss. I think the show is effective in some respects and missed badly in others. And after about three episodes were in the can, Ben said to me, I don't like what we're doing. It's too old school. It's too old fashioned. And I said, what do you mean? He said, it's just, uh, you know, we a host that comes out on a stage, and it wasn't a stage; it was it was on the streets. Um, but but it just it wasn't the way I saw the show, and I don't like it. And I'm going to call the network president Peter Chernin and tell him that I don't like. It's not my vision. I said, Ben, you guys did a show last year that they spent money on and ate. Then you did a show this year that they showed me before I was interviewed by you guys for the job that they said was wrong. That was that playhouse idea. Now we've shot three and you're going to call the network and say, you don't like it. I said, you're going to, you're going to kill the show. I promise you Then they're going to freak out if you do that. And he said, I, I'm going to do this. And I said, and also this, the studio, which is HBO. I mean, maybe we should talk to them. He said, they're, they're, they're the ones who are pushing us into this direction that I don't like the heck with the studio. I said, you can't say the heck with the studio. They're the ones paying anyway to make a long story short. He called the president of the network at home. And I put my fingers in my ears saying, we're going to be all out of work tomorrow. And the next day when I came in, Ben said, guess what? I said, what? We're out of work. He said, no. He said, you do the show you want to do. Start from scratch again. That is absolutely unbelievable. I, I mean, that, that was somebody saying, and there were network executives at Fox who had been pushing us in that direction. There were people at HBO because it was being made by HBO Independent Productions called HIP, H-I-P, who were pushing us in a certain direction. And Ben all of a sudden said, this is still not my vision. And he went to the head guy and the head guy said, fine, make it your vision. It was a double-edged sword because the network executives at Fox, who had been behind that, looked silly to the president, Peter Chernin, because, you, you know, he has been still not liking what we're doing. And what are you guys doing? You're pushing him into stuff. And the people at HBO, I got a call, I'll never forget, from the president of HBO saying, I cannot believe he called the network. Why didn't he speak to us first? We look foolish. And I said, it reminded me of a scene from The Godfather, like when Michael Corleone said, 
when he was cutting Fredo out of the family, he said, you know, he is not to come to my house. He is not to be, I am not to see him, all of this stuff. And that's what the guys at HBO said. We don't care about this show anymore. Our name is going to be on it, but we are not going to give you notes. We're not going to, I'm like, oh my God, we need the studio because the studio fights battles for you. But Ben absolutely was determined to make the mountain come to him. He was bending the network to his will as Larry David did Mm. the same exact way. Now, you can try to do that, and that may work, or it may blow up in your face. I'm sure many people said no, and the network or studio said, what do you mean no? Get the hell out of here, you're done. And you never heard of them. People named Harry Ferguson or something who, who can say, I told the network to jump in the lake. The reason I'm bringing this whole story up is, number one, it was sort of revealing about Ben's attitude which is I know and they don't, but we made enemies, which when the show ran into rating troubles, no one at HBO and very few people at Fox were interested in helping because it's like, hey, you know, Ben's a genius. Let him do. And, you know, they had the show on Sunday night against 60 Minutes. It was a death slot. And at, at that time, Fox, again, was sort of struggling to attract viewers, certainly against 60 Minutes. It was it was murderous. And because of that, we cut up a bunch of the stuff from those first three shows and used it across the next 14, some of which were guests. So when you say Bobcat was first, mm. That's why I couldn't remember, because he may well have been on the air the first guest, but actually not used until the third show, because what we had to do was sort of disassemble a show, and it made me look also like, I thought you were supposed to be watching these kids a couple of people at the network said, whoa, you, you were supposed to be the grown-up in the room. It's like, hey, what, what's going on? Ben, you guys were ultimately pushing us in a direction that Ben didn't like. And it was very telling. That show won an Emmy. And we never, even in the wake of, of winning the Emmy, the show had already been canceled. The show was off the air. I didn't think there was any chance in the world of winning because when you win an Emmy, it's theoretically to help commercially a product do well at the box office or do well with viewers. To me, it's like there's no sense in giving an Emmy to this show. We're already canceled. We're not going to win. But we did. We never got a word of congratulations from HBO or a word of congratulations even from Fox. And we were maybe not the first Emmy, but I think the first comedy Emmy that Fox had ever gotten, and their nose was still out of joint. What had happened was, I remember now, not to get too lost in the weeds, but the guy who was the president of the network left the network, and everybody moved up who had been below him. The vice president became the president, and 
and that guy who left, a guy named Peter Chernin, I think he later became the head of Fox Movies and big shot up in up in the Rupert Murdoch empire. He was the big advocate for the show. And he was the one who Ben had called saying, I don't like what we're doing. But when he left, and the only people who were left at Fox or at HBO were people who had felt disrespected by us because Ben had called the network without checking with the lower people for not the network, Ben had called the president of the network at home at night. I knew the moment that that Peter Chernin left that they're going to cancel the show. And they did it almost instantaneously. Not one congratulations, I think, ever came in from either HBO or from... So you you can win a battle but lose a war. But Ben, I would say, got the last laugh, as did Judd Apatow. If you look at the subsequent careers they had, I'm sure that they're not uh, shedding any tears, but I always, I learned a lesson that occasionally if a rhino is charging and you stand there and punch the rhino as hard as you can in the nose, every once in a while the rhino might be stunned and turn and just wander away. And that's exactly what happened when Ben said, I want to start a third time with white one, two, three, mine was the third time. We went a fourth direction. So anyway, it was it was a little tricky to to know which guests were, were where. I, right. think, I think the first we shot with was Run DMC, which you can believe the network was like, Run DMC, who are they? But it, they were a favorite musical band, a favorite musical group of, of uh, bands. And he said who they are is our first guest. So I think we shot first with them. Okay, and you got to appear in the pilot episode of the Ben Stiller show. Yes, yes, I know. And that was very much sort of a mixed bag because, again, it was almost Ben and Judd having fun, making fun of the role that I was in which is the guy always saying, let's do this, let's change that, let's... It was a very, very difficult position to be put in in that show. As I said, Ben and Judd had shot a couple of pilots. Then they were told, we need somebody who can sort of, you know, make sure that the train stays on the tracks. And I was in a position that on a daily basis, the network was calling saying, what's going on? Uh, Things under control. And almost like they wanted me to tattletale on on Ben and Judd. Are are they doing the right thing? Is this stuff funny? Send the stuff over to what what they're writing today. We want to see it. And HBO was doing the same thing. They were the production company. They were the studio. What's happening there? So I was sort of forced into the role of always saying, Ben, listen, we've got to make these changes. We've got to do this thing and we've got to, and half the time he'd say no. And I'd go, oh my God, what's going to happen if we don't? And nothing really did happen, which was quite remarkable. From now on, I'm not going to listen to what anyone wants. So when when they did the pilot, uh, uh, or 
actually the first episode for the show, they said, Bruce, play yourself as sort of an annoying worry ward who's always saying, we've got to change this, we've got to fix that, we've got to... And that is why I said there was like sort of in the humor a little bit of a cutting edge because I think they were kind of making fun affectionately, but I'm sure that's the way they saw me as the nervous guy who was always saying the network wants us to fix this and that. Well, what's funny is that the what the what the hey is actually a meme. That's amazing. Did it come from that? I thought I made it up. No, no, no. You saying what the what the hey is actually a meme that people use now. When somebody wow, says... That's amazing. That makes, that makes me... Uh, uh, somebody once cut out the crossword puzzle in the New York Times and they said Kramer's... Jerry Neighbor Kramer's first name. And in the episode that I had done, The Switch, mm-hmm. we gave the name away as Cosmo. So now I feel like I've really arrived. I was all excited about Ruth Buzzy and Lassie being in the TV Guide, about Variety Magazine blasting 60 Minutes that I wrote. Being a meme, I think even honestly, trumps the Cosmo crossword puzzle. I'm thrilled to have heard that. I really mean that. That really, that that gives me a boot. I've seen that where somebody says something on like Facebook, and then somebody doesn't believe it. They go, "What? They they have the beam? What the what the hey?" <laughs> I really think I made that up. As I said, it was definitely a little bit of of sort of them poking fun at the role that that ultimately I had. That show was, I think, the third or fourth time I was on opposite sixty minutes. That <laughs> seems to be that death slot. Sunday night, the Donnie Marie show was there. Ben Stiller was there. One other thing, I think Dolly was Sunday nights too. But the the results were always the same, which was a visit not too long afterwards to the unemployment office. Um, just a couple more questions about Fridays then. I want to ask you if you would come back because there's so much more to talk to you about. I want to know if, if that's possible. Yeah, of course. Okay. Um... Did you? Because yeah, we, we got to stop this one of these days. Yeah, who, who, who's managing to fight your way through all of this? I probably have been talking your ear off. I apologize. Oh, no, I'm, I'm interested. Um, so I heard you came up with the Golden Boys also. Yes, that, that was one of my great disappointments because the characters never caught on. And that was. One of the things that you can really get a boot out of is your own personal interests and peccadillos and, you know, elevating it to something that everybody becomes aware of. And I've always been a professional wrestling fan, mainly about just the interviews of how ludicrous it is that people grow up. Uh, they're, they're grown-up men saying, you know, I'm going to destroy you, and I'm going to, I mean, basically acting like children. And I pitched those characters, and they said, let's give it a shot. And I know Larry loved doing it, Larry David. He he was really terrific at it. And they did it two or three times, and just never, I 
kept saying, can we see them again? It, it was always, I was their biggest cheerleader. The idea was a couple of wrestlers in private life who behave exactly that same way. Like my brother said, Friday night, November 23rd, I'm going to be at your house for dinner. But what I want to know is will you be there? You know, that sort of stuff. And using the physicality that Mark Blankfield was so great at. And I really always, <laughs> I won it both ways. I was complaining about reoccurring characters. And yet at the same time, when I had one that spoke to me personally, like the Golden Boys, I felt that they didn't get, they didn't get their due. So, uh, yeah, that was, that was characters that we came up with. We did the Three Stooges, which ended up in a, a threatened loss. Yeah, by Moe's wife, uh, Moe's daughter, I mean. Yeah. Get involved. You have to listen. 
It was funny. I went to the dentist on Thursday and I was telling him that I was, he was always asking who you're going to talk to. And I said, Bruce Kirschbaum. And he, and he's like, Oh, I don't know who I said. He was a writer on Fridays. He goes, my favorite sketch on Fridays. Uh, it was when they used to do the three stooges on pot. Really? Yeah. God, that really makes me feel great. That, that it, it, it's remarkable. I'll, I'll tell you a little quick anecdote. Then we'll wrap it today. Okay. Okay. And that is, Whenever you do something on television and then find out later, you almost forget that people are out there looking at it. And whenever you get an example like what you just told, it really makes you feel like all the effort and all the all the sweat and all the aggravation is worthwhile. And, and it's rare that you do hear from anyone on the civilian side of things saying that affected me in some way or another. And the anecdote I, I was going to tell you was the producer of the old Bewitched show had an office next to mine when I was doing the show a few years ago, a guy named um, Asher. Mm-hmm. Um, what was his first name? William? William? Asher, I think yeah. it was Bill Asher. And when I was a kid, the show Bewitched was shot in the Boston area for about a week. And it was front page news that the production company from Hollywood was going to be shooting in Salem. Right. Something about the witch, the witches, the witch house. And they were going to be shooting up in Gloucester and they were going to be shooting in, in Boston and Paul Reviews. And that day on the playground, that was the biggest conversation that everybody was so excited that right now in this very state of Massachusetts <laughs> are people from an actual Hollywood that breathe in the same air. They'll see the same. Wow, they're here now. And then when the thing aired, it was back in the newspaper again saying those episode shot in our area are going to start tonight the first one and everybody watched it and was so excited to see the stars of the show in places we had been the boston common so i wanted to tell this william asher who was the producer of this bewitch show what a thrill that was so i came in and i introduced myself and i said do you remember many many years ago having shot in the Boston area. He said, do I remember? That was the most miserable week of my life. Teamsters? And that's what he said. I said, what? Really? And he said, oh, my God. He said, you know, the first thing is it rained. Rained, rained. We couldn't get half the setups. They also had us in a motel that I don't know. We, we were 25 minutes from the set. There were union problems there that made shooting there miserable. We couldn't wait to get out of there. We never got half the shots that we wanted, and it was just a lousy, lousy experience. And I said, what's amazing about what you're saying is at the time you guys were there, that was front page news. And we were so excited as kids that you were in our state. And then we all watched... And the entire point of the anecdote I'm saying is this guy listened with sort of a 
entirely changed expression and he said, you know something? He said, I never even thought about what it meant to people like you viewing the show and how, he said, I think all of us in show business sometimes get guilty of not remembering how lucky we are, number one, and number two, what a difference, silly or not, that it does make in people's lives very often. Even if it's just a minute, he says, I'm not gonna forget what you said. I've always quickly thought of that in Boston as what a headache. It never occurred to me that people were thrilled. I've never thought of it. I was in the business too long. Thanks for bringing that up. And I similarly try to not lose track of the fact that silly or not, people seem to be entertained. They forget their problems for a half hour. They watch a show as unimportant as it seems to me or as much effort or sweat or pain as you put into it. For the few times that someone says, my dentist said, I enjoyed the Three Stooges, it's not an ego thing. It just sort of humbles me to realizing that's what it's all about. So I thank you for bringing that up. That's, that's the lesson that William Asher took from me and one that you just reminded me of as well. I, I thank you for it. And he didn't know you wrote it and I didn't know you wrote it yeah. until yeah. you brought it up. Isn't that interesting? That's great. All righty. So right. then how do you want to leave this? All right. Well, um, There'll be a part two. We'll just have to set it up.